If you'll turn with me to Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. There's a little bit of an apology to begin with here in that um, I'm going to be reading from the NIV rather than ESV that we normally do. And the purpose of that is that my wife and I have been memorizing the book of Philippians. And if I go back to ESV, I'll be very confused. So please bear with me. And if my words do not line up with yours, it's okay. But this is the word of God, Philippians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus to all the saints in Philippi, together with, in Christ Jesus, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you since I have you in my heart. For whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless until the day of Christ filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This was God's word. If you'll recall, James last week did an overview on the book of Philippians and did an excellent job. So my duty today is not to introduce the book because that's been already done. And if you did not catch that, please go to our website and pick it up. Um, it's well worth listening to. This summer we have the privilege of listening to your elders and others on the book of Philippians. And if you are not one to take notes, I would recommend that you think that through and do so. You're going to get different perspectives on this book. You're going to get different takes, if you will, but different personalities. Our personalities always come through when we preach. And it will be an amazing experience. I'm looking forward to it greatly. Um, as you know, summer is a time that we can't be here all the time. Each of us will have our vacation times, but these will be posted on the website so that you can go back through, listen to them, and take your notes. Consider that a slight encouragement. <laughs> One question I have for you, was Philippians written for the Philippians or for us as well? Was it just for the church of Philippi, or was it for us? Do we take this stuff literally, or do we take this stuff and say it was for them and we don't have to worry about it? If it was for them and we don't have to worry about it, why was it in the canon of Scripture? There are many books written at this time 
many scrolls that got lost. Why was Philippians preserved? Why is it there? Now, let me suggest to you that it is for us as well. Paul wrote to the Philippians, but the stuff that he wrote are not just for them, but it's for us. And there's a lot of practical applications for us. So, when we look at something like this, I use what's called the inductive method. The inductive method says you look at the passage, you observe what's there. Then you interpret it, find out what it says and what it means. Then the third part is application. And the way we define application is how do I change my life to line it up with what the teaching says? That's the part where you beat yourself up. You don't need me to do that. You can beat yourself up. But it's more than a beat yourself up. It's more of a lining yourself up to refine it, to walk in accordance with what Scripture says to the glory and praise of God. And that needs to come out more and more as we look at Scripture. How are we walking in accordance with the praise of, to, in, in accordance to Scripture? That's why I like to journal, and I'm going to bring this out later, and that is because it's how God is working in our life and how God is extending grace to me, I can go back and reflect on that. At the end of the year, instead of doing um, annual um, turning over new leaves and making new goals that you soon forget by the middle of February, I go back and reread my journal and what they call harvest it to see how I've grown this last year. What has God been doing in my life? Part of that is the sermons that we hear. How am I applying that? Am I doing that? And kind of helping myself to understand what God is doing in my life and continuing on. Just like the ducks got here, not by an accident, but by God's grace, we grow. And we need to purpose in ourselves that we are going to grow and see the progress that we make in our spiritual lives. It's not easy to do. Sometimes we need a mentor to help us through this, and we have that available. And it's easy to do in groups, and that is why we have small groups. But back to uh, Philippians chapter 1. Chapter 1, I suggest the title for the whole chapter is Standing Firm, Past, Present, and Future. The part that I'm going to talk about is just the past, verses 3 through 11. Then there is the future, 12 to 26, or present, 12 to 26, and the future, um, 27 to 30. Verses 3 to 11 is from the first day until now, he says. 13 to 26, he says, that I might continue with you. And 27 to 30, that I may hear of your fruits. So, introduction, first two verses. I'm going to give you about four hours worth of preaching in about 20 minutes. So this is going to be my usual, here comes the fire hose, drink what you can, take what you can with you, and think about the rest, because uh, we're going to put the gas on here, and we're just going to move quickly, because as you know, I leave about 10 after for work, and if I stay longer, I'll be late for work. So. I'll be, you'll be out of here early today, that's a promise, <laughs> because uh, I can't stay. This is not, I'm not Lee, I don't, 
have all kinds of time. So <laughs> that wasn't a dig. That was just, yeah, please, don't take it that way. All right, verses 1 and 2. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. What do you see there? What's repeated the most? Jesus Christ. What is the focus of Paul in the beginning of this letter? Christ Jesus. It's obvious, right? That's obvious. Why does he say that? Because he wants to start out saying everything is because of Christ. The second thing is to the saints. Why are the saints first? He goes to the saints, the overseers, and the deacons. Why the saints first? Because the saints are the important ones in the church. Think about that. What is important in our church? Not the overseers or elders, not the deacons, the saints. Everything is for the saints, to build you up in Christ Jesus. Who are the saints? They are the ones that are set apart for the gospel. Is your life set apart for the gospel? That's what the word means, set apart. What makes them set apart for the gospel? Their belief and their activities, their actions, their good works, their works of righteousness. We're going to get into that a little bit later. And their fellowship with one another. Again, James did a good work, good job last week on the term for fellowship. If you didn't catch it, go back and catch it. It's amazing. The fellowship that we have with one another makes us saints. At North Point, of course, as a part of the community, we are not outside of the church. We are not church shopping. We're not finding fault with each other. But we are a part, striving together, loving one another, and growing with one another. That's part of the fellowship that we have. To the elders or overseers, there are three terms that are used for leaders in the church. They are elders or overseers or bishops and pastors. Qualifications for bishops are given in 1 Timothy 3, 1 to 7. I was going to read that, but I'm not going to. Um, qualifications for elders are given in Titus 1, 5 to 9. I was going to read that, but I'm not going to. And the thing of it is, is that the qualifications for bishops and the qualifications for elders are exactly the same. Therefore, we say that the two terms are synonymous, elders and overseers. The third term that we use in our culture is pastors, and that is a cultural term because the only time when that is used uh, in conjunction with the leaders, it's in 1 Peter 5, verses 1 and 2, and that the elders are to shepherd or pastor the flock. So it is actually an action and not a noun. We as elders are to pastor or shepherd the flock. So therefore, we at North Point strive to not use that term pastor when describing a leader in the church. We attempt to use the word elders because we feel it is more closely in tune with what the Bible says. So when we are talking about pastors in a church, we understand the cultural implications, and we're not going to change the culture of the world. We're just going to develop the culture of North Point and try to do it that way, and that is why. All right, deacons. 
Deacon's qualifications are given in 1 Timothy 3, verses 8 to 13. Again, I was going to read that, but I'm not going to. Um, because deacons have a list of qualifications. They're very similar to the overseers and deacons, except there's one main one that's left off, and that is the ability to teach. Deacons were first appointed in Acts chapter 6. Read that when you get a chance. It's an amazing chapter. But basically what was going on in the church, New Testament churches was that the uh, widows were not being fed, especially the Greek widows, and there was a complaint to the apostles. And so rather than handling the complaint themselves, they appointed seven men who were godly, met qualifications, and allowed them to handle these problems. At North Point, we have a group of men that have these qualifications that we have used as deacons, and they handle many tasks here, such as budget, uh, setup, benevolence, to name a few, so that elders can concentrate on the things that they were supposed to. And in Acts 6, the apostles appointed deacons so that they could um, concentrate on shepherding, prayer, and the word. And that's what we as elders concentrate on and attempt to spend most of our time on. Even though there are administrative things that we do, shepherding is high on our list, prayer, and preaching the word is very high on our list. So the elders do teach. They have small groups. They preach up here, and you'll see more of us this summer to your benefit. Yeah, benefit. Okay. Um, and that's how that's going on. Then Paul says grace and peace. I always found the words grace and peace amazing from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ because he's combining both the Hebrew and the Greek greeting. Shalom and Kairos. Grace is Kairos, Shalom, peace. So the, the Jewish people would say Shalom, the Jew, Greek people would say Kairos. So he combines the two so that culturally he's, well, politically correct. But at the same time, it does help, help us and draw us into the fact that we get grace and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. He uses two pe people of the Trinity here. I'm not going to go off into the triune God doctrine, but here's a chance to jump off into that if we wanted to. Remembering that Paul always has in front of him that Jesus Christ is separate from God the Father, yet united with God the Father. It's, um, it's a process that we have to continue to think about, and it is who he, God is, and the fact that we can have that from our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 3 to 11, past tense, from the first day until now. I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. Being Paul, um, Think about this. Paul's prayer life must have been very extensive. Because I'm sure that he didn't just pray for the Philippian church, but he also prayed for the church at Ephesus and at Colossae and at Corinth and the other churches and the people in Rome. His prayer life is very extensive. 
I'm sure it was not a five or 10 or 15 minute devotional before he started his life. I am positive of the fact that he continually prayed. And this is an example. This is why Philippians is for us. It's an example for us to think about when we pray. How do we pray? Do we pray with joy because of our partnership or our koinonia or our fellowship in the gospel with one another here at North Point? Do we pray with joy? Joy is a key word in Philippians. It's repeated, one person said 16 times. So why is joy repeated? I think it's an attitude that Paul has towards his fellow believers at Philippians. From the first day until now, when Paul went to Philippi, he met with Lydia, met with a group down by the river. They had fellowship with one another. One day he gets irritated by a, a girl who calls out to him and he uh, has the evil spirit removed from him and he gets thrown in jail for doing this good work. So Paul in Philippi is thrown in jail. The reason why I think that's significant is because later on he says whether I'm in change or defending and affirming the gospel, you share in God's grace with me. In Philippi, he was in chains. So literally, they know what he means when he says, whether I'm in chains. Even though when he wrote this, he's in Rome in chains. The Philippians stuck with him. And their partnership was both in financial benefit to him. They gave him, I feel, money but they also shared in their deep concern for his well-being. From the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That verse was shared earlier today, and I thought it was very appropriate that it was shared today. This perseverance of the saints is something that we hold dear. Wayne Gruden, in his book, says the perseverance of the saints means that all those who are truly born again will be kept by God's power until the end of their lives, and only those who persevere until the end have been truly born again. It's an uh, interesting paradox. But the doctrines of grace are all interesting paradoxes. They are the total depravity of man. Man is not able to receive Christ without God first initiating that faith within him. The unconditional election. You were chosen before the foundation of the world, not based upon your good works, but based upon God's grace. Limited atonement. God's grace and God's dying on the cross saves those who are chosen. He saves the elect. That's why he died. He didn't die for the whole world because we don't believe in universalism. We don't believe in universal salvation. We believe in salvation of the elect. Irresistible grace is another one of the doctrines of grace. Irresistible grace is that means that when God has chosen you to save you, you will be saved. And I think that I thank God for that. Because if I had my way, I would never choose God. 
if I had my way, I would still be in sin, I would be never here, and I would be in the deepest and darkest of hole I could find, because that's who I am. I am a sinner. God chose me and saved me, and by his grace, I am here. So by the perseverance of saints means that I will persevere to the end. There's a couple of things that we have to realize. John 10, 27 and through 29 says that we are in God the Father's hand, and my hand, Christ's hand, is on top of them, and no one will ever be able to snatch you out of his hand. In Ephesians 1, we have the seal of the Holy Spirit, meaning that you have been entrusted by the Holy Spirit, who is in within you as a, not only a sign of your salvation, but so that you will endure to the end. And 1 Peter 1.5, I have to read this one to you because it really struck me. 1 Peter 1.5 says, You who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. You are shielded by God's power to the end. So the perseverance of the saints is a God thing. Now I have a, another saying that I use once in a while, but uh, these sayings, if you have to explain them, they're not very good, but I have to explain this one because I like it. And this is called the B-side. Back in my day, when a group came out with a song, it was on a 45. You know what a 45 is? It's a little tiny record with a big hole in the middle, and it spins on a turntable at 45 rounds per minute. That's what 45 RPMs are. And you bought the record because of the one side that had this great song. But on the flip side, or the B side, was the same group singing a song, but it usually wasn't that great. So on the B side of perseverance of the saints, we have a couple of things we have to think of. John 8 says, you are preserved only if you continue in my word. You are preserved if you endure to the end. That's in Matthew and Colossians says, if you endure to the end. Those who fall away but gave signs of conversion, what about those? Were they not chosen? Galatians says that there are false brethren that are secretly brought in, Galatians 2.4. 2 Corinthians 11 says there are those who are here disguised as servants of righteousness, but really are not. So what's the key? The key, I think, is in John 15 that we have studied in the past that we are to abide in him and he in us. Abiding in Christ is the key. So, what are the factors of our salvation? One is presently trusting in Christ for salvation. Factor number two is evidence of the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit. That's why I journal. You don't have to, this is, that's okay. But journaling for me is evidence that the Holy Spirit is working within me and in, he is growing me. Third is, again, why I journaled the long-term pattern of growth in my life. Tracing my growth year by year, seeing how I've grown. Participation in the gospel is next.
As I mentioned, it's concern for Paul financially as well as for his well-being. But we, therefore, are to participate in the gospel in our love for our missionaries. Paul has a, is a missionary sent on a mission to plant churches. We have missionaries that we adore. The Masungas, the Matthews, and the Gilberts. We pray for them. We meet their needs as we can. We participate in the gospel with them. We have them in our heart. So Paul's prayer. Paul requests that your love will abound more and more. What is that? A love for what? I pray that your, this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. What love? Love for who, love for what? He doesn't say. Put it in context, I think I would like to suggest that it's love for each other, love for himself, and love for Christ, all of the above. So how do we do this? How do we love each other more in knowledge and depth of insight? And that's to get to know one another. It's more than a surface, hi, how you doing? How was your week? Oh, good, I'm glad. It's more like, how can I pray for you? What's going on in your life? And you can't do that in a surface meeting. You can't even do that all the time after church here, although we'd like you to do that. You can't always do that on the phone. Sometimes it does take a small group where you can get together and after small group get to know one another. Pray for one another with joy so that you will know one another in depth as well as the gospel, as well as Christ. Why? So you can approve the things that are excellent and be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. I had Thessalonians read to you because it reminds me of the day of Christ. If you go back to that passage in Thessalonians, that is what we're living for. That is what we're striving for. We're not striving for our house or our car or our kids or as important as they are. That's not our strife. Our strife is for Christ. In our lives, we struggle with putting our grandkids ahead of our love for Christ. There it is. It's out there. Our struggle. We love our grandkids tremendously. But our struggle needs to be that we love Christ more. We all have our idols. We all have things that we love to do and love to talk about, and that's great. I have no problem with that. But as long as it's in perspective of loving Christ more, so that we may be excellent and be sincere and blameless until the day of Christ. What is excellent? What is best for ourselves and what is best for each other? Sincere and blameless, what does that mean? Pure conscience in the sight of God, pure and upright. So if you were to stand before God right now, obviously we'd say, God, it's all because of Christ I'm here, so anything I did wrong, it's on him. And that's the right answer. But also, 
we are responsible for what we are doing for him. That's what works of righteousness are. To the glory and praise of God. Filled with the fruit of righteousness, Calvin says, good conscience produces its fruit by means of good works. Be fruitful in good works to the glory of God. Such fruits are, Christ, are by Christ because they flow from the grace of Christ. We are saved for good works, so work out your salvation. We are not saved to huddle up with each other, but be an example to each other and to the world and reaching each other and the world for the day of Christ and until the day of Christ. A little bit later by that clock, but I have 11 after, so conclusion. Written to the saints at Philippi, we were to remind them of his love for him, to continue in growth in the gospel and love for one another. We need to take this to heart, continue in our love for one another, and growth in the gospel, and be able to track this growth through our good deeds and constantly expanding knowledge of scripture and the gospel to the glory and praise of God. Thank you.